Good afternoon, everybody. So glad that you are here. Please do continue to uh, fill your plates uh, as people uh, trickle in, battling midtown traffic and beyond. Um, I'm glad that you're here for the second in our Lunch and Learn series through Holy Week. Uh, the theme, if you're here for the first time today, is Prophetic Jesus, Prophetic Church. Uh, and it's wonderful today to really, I would say, I can't quite say welcome home because Stephanie definitely has a home uh, in this diocese, but uh, welcome back to one of your homes, to the Reverend Stephanie Taylor, uh, who has been a, a affiliated clergy here at All Saints for uh, several years and a part of our community. And of course, in the Episcopal Church, the smallest unit that we have, as much as we try to be congregational, uh, is the diocese, that our unity is uh, through our bishop, and so we're all part of one diocesan family. Uh, Reverend Stephanie Taylor is the uh, chaplain and a priest associate at St. Martin's uh, in the Fields Episcopal Church and School. Probably feels mostly which way around it feels, depending on the day, uh, whether the school comes first or church. Um, and um, is a graduate of the University of South Carolina, there we go, <laughs> and of General Seminary. Uh, and I know there's a few people in the room that have a General Seminary uh, Association themselves. Uh, we're delighted that you are with us uh, this afternoon. There will be opportunity to ask Stephanie questions and engage her uh, during the latter part of our time together. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you. It is really, really good to be back. And I have to tell you, this is such a hopeful experience for me because I'm in that like wonderful stage of life where my children are six and four. So already today, you know, I was up at 6 a.m. and like making breakfast and then cleaning up breakfast and then changing clothes and then snack and then cleaning up, you know, that like whole phase. And then it just starts over the next day. And so I'm here and I'm like, oh my gosh, these people can just come at noon to like learn. <laughs> like one day, that will be me. I can come and just do something. So thank you for <laughs> showing me there's light at the other end of the tunnel. Um, speaking of the last time I was here, I was pregnant with my daughter, Mary. So I thought I'd give you a little sneak peek at what she looks like now. There she is. She's super sassy. She was, uh, you know, named after Mary Magdalene, and I probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> she definitely, uh, that's, that's her whole thing, is she, she's a rebel. All right, what do I want? Presentation form, right? How do I get there? Hang on. It's my fault for wanting to show you a picture. Does anyone know where presentation form is? Oh, view? There it is. Presenter view. Perfect. All right, so if you are, um, this is your first time here, we're going to be talking about prophecy and the prophetic voice in the church. I've heard that you guys came from it from kind of a New Testament biblical view the last few days, Sunday and Monday. So today we're going to kind of go the internal route. You know, what does the prophetic voice mean? for us as individuals, and specifically also from a contemplative lens. That's the lens that's my most comfortable, um, and the one that I really feel like we're being called into at this kind of divisive time. So that's going to be the arc of the presentation today. 
And the way that I want to start is with um, the Gospel of Thomas. Are any of you guys familiar with the Gnostic Gospels? Some are, some are not. So the Gnostic Gospels, you know, were found in the 1960s, um, and they sort of were not given their proper place right away because the carbon dating put them at like three, four hundred years after Jesus, and people were like, you know, it's just too long for us to consider this, you know, gospel material. Um, but recently, there was a scientist named April DeConnick who, um, with new carbon dating, redid it and actually found that Thomas and Mary Magdalene and Peter, those gospels really date to around like five. So they're actually a little bit closer to ground zero than even the gospels that are traditionally in the Bible. So I do think it's important that we as a church take a look at the Gnostic gospels. And Thomas is my favorite one of of all of them. I mean, probably Mary Magdalene would be too, but <laughs> there's, those ones are harder to piece together. We have more of Thomas. So this is, comes from Thomas Logan 2. It says, Jesus said, let one who seeks not stop seeking until that person finds. And upon finding, the person will be disturbed. And being disturbed will be astounded and will reign over the entirety. Does anything stick out for you that you find interesting or that is drawing you? Remember, I work with children, so it's interactive. (laughs) Disturbed, good, yeah, that's always what pulls me first. Um, Does this look like a Bible verse you're familiar with? Which one? Anyone want to yell it out? Seek and you shall find. The thing with seek and you shall find is that it doesn't tell you what you should seek or what's going to happen when you find it, right? So I feel like this is a more full uh, Bible verse, because it's basically saying, um, once you start seeking, you can't stop if you wanted to. Have you ever experienced that? Like you go down a rabbit hole and you're like, ooh, I wish I didn't know that, but you can't unknow it now. Um, And so this is sort of honoring that process. Once you start, you really can't stop uh, until you find. But then once you find it, like you're not gonna be all like, oh, wonderful puppies and rainbows. Like, it's going to disturb your soul a little bit. Um, And then what happens? You're astounded. And another translation of this says it leads to wonder, which I really love. Um, So it's not that you're going to find all of the answers to the universe, um, but you will be in a spot of wonder. And then the, the last one, and then you will reign over the entirety, right? There's a sense of, um, of power here, but in its proper form, which is not power over others, but power over yourself. So this is the basis for me of prophecy. Um, Prophecy is not usually going to tell you something that you want to hear or that's easy to hear. You know, like no prophet is coming to me that's like, listen, you're going to win a million dollars. You know, like that's not what prophets come to do. Um, But they do come, and when they come, it's going to be disturbing. So Cynthia Bergeau, one of my teachers, always says it like this. You know, the, the first man who had the audacity to suggest that the world was round, do you know what happened to him? <laughs> like, it didn't turn out well for him, right? Um, people were like, oh, no, you're not going to mess with our worldview. Um, the world is flat. And that was what they knew. But there was a paradigm shift. And so little by little, 
They made it through their disturbedness. And one by one, they're like, oh, I guess we haven't fallen off the edge of the world yet. I mean, maybe it's round, right? And then all of a sudden, we're in a brand new paradigm. Everyone knows that the world is round. Um, and in life, that's how it works. We have a paradigm, then we're introduced to something new and greater and deeper, and it disturbs us at first. But if we sit in it, if we just stay with it, we get to, to the wonder part. We get to the other paradigm. We get to move forward. So for me, that's kind of the, the individual process of prophecy. Um, Walter Brueggemann says it like this. We're dealing with a new truth when the old truth, controlled by human power, has grown irrelevant, weary, and boring. Have you ever experienced any truth getting irrelevant, <laughs> weary, or boring? Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, actually, I, uh, you should know that I'm from a fundamentalist background, fundamentalist evangelical in the woods of North Carolina. And it was a very interesting progression for me to go from that to Episcopalian, right? There was a new truth that was found. And at one point, I was like, I'm just going to burn everything down, like all the churches down, because none of this makes sense and everyone's corrupt, right? <laughs> um, but that's not what you're supposed to do. So... Um, the biblical kind of verse, I always have to, to ground everything in scripture because of that fundamentalist background. You just can't beat it out of me, you know? Um, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But the scripture verse that helps us with prophecy the most, I think, is this one. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, she will guide you into all the truth. For she will not speak on her own, but will speak whatever she hears. And she will declare to you the things that are to come. She will glorify me because she will take what is mine and declare it to you. Um, that's one of my favorite Bible verses in the whole thing. Right before Jesus is about to die and he's letting people know this isn't the end, right? What we have in the scriptures is actually not all of it. It's not complete. Um, so we have to look for where the spirit is leading us. It's not enough to just be like, we have the book and it's the playbook, and we can't get outside of it, right? There's another player, um, and it's our job as Christians to keep looking for that. I wish I had a pointer, sorry. So far, many mainline churches have gone the way of saying the right things and believing the right things in an effort to know God. They've relied on their creeds and their doctrine and their traditions, Change has been hard-fought and often viewed as suspicious. The sheer fact that there is such a thing as heresy suggests the tight grasp that Christianity has on right belief. So, up until, you know, 60, year 60 after Jesus died, the Christians had to rely on just their own personal connection with Christ. There weren't any creeds. There wasn't any scripture. Um, they had to rely on this sort of instinct and personal connection to God to get along. And, you know, a hundred years later, they started to begin to worry that they were going to lose it, right? And it had been too long. Um, and they were like, we've got to write this down. We've got to form churches. 
We have to make sure everyone knows what we've learned, and this is all a good instinct and has allowed us to survive for 2,000 years. But what did we lose in the process? Anyone have an idea of what we may have lost in doing this? No? I think we've lost that ability to be uh, personally connected to Jesus who was real. This man who came in the flesh um, to give us an example of God. We're very reliant on our creeds, on our doctrine, on our liturgy. I say this as an Episcopal priest. (laughs) It's important. But we somehow have become suspicious of anything outside of that. And sometimes that can hinder the prophetic voice. If we're too focused on right belief, then we might miss what the truth is that's right in front of us. Um, The best example of this that I can give is the doctrine of original sin. You guys know the doctrine of original sin, right? It's a pretty sound doctrine of the church, but there's not really anything in the Bible to me that tells me that that's a sound doctrine, right? Like St. Benedict operated before that doctrine and he operated out of a wholeness doctrine, that people were whole, that we were made good and that we have a connection to God, right? And somewhere along the line came this idea that we were born flawed and we always had to find a way to cover up that flaw. Uh, And I think that that doctrine's done a lot of damage, right? But it's right belief. So don't worry, I'm a heretic, just just so you know, it's already there. Um, I swear that God uh, made me a priest just to like literally put a collar on me because otherwise I like flow with the wind. I'm like, I just, you know, whatever God wants. All right, so how do we discern then if we're talking about this invisible, um, non-auditory voice, this prophetic voice, and if we're worried about it not always being in the scripture, if we're worried worried about it being something new, how do we know that it's not just our own ego? Um, When I was in seminary, I was really, really mad at the church over how they were handling gay and lesbian people. Um, I called up my bishop. I was like, listen, I'm just, I can't be a priest in your church. Like, this is, this is not the church that I believe in, right? I was very self-righteous. I was super young. Um, And he said, you know, Steph, I, you can do that if you want, but I think that you have a lot to give the church, and I also think the church has a lot to give you, because sometimes you can end up creating God in your own image and worshiping yourself. And I do think that that's something I have an issue with. <laughs> I think that Jesus is just like me, and he would be my best friend, and I'm pretty sure he loves me best. So, like... Whenever I'm trying to hear the prophetic voice, there is a good chance that it might be just coming from my own ego. So there's got to be a way for me that I discern truth. That it, it can't just be all about like the gospel according to Stephanie Taylor. Although I, I could write one. It'd be great. <laughs> all right, so I'm um, pulling from Walter Brueggemann. I know that you guys read Luke Timothy Johnson's book, but because I wasn't here Sunday or Monday, I was worried I would just repeat some of the same stuff. So I'm pulling from Brueggemann a little bit, and it's from his book, The Creative Word, which I really highly recommend. So he has, I call it Brueggemann's Trinity. He doesn't call it that, but I called it that. 
The way that he discerned uh, prophecy is kind of a three-part um, situation. There's, it's grounded in Torah, which is you know the scripture. Um, then you have the prophecy, and then the wisdom literature, which is essentially how do you apply it to everyday life. So the, the reason that we ground everything in scripture is that this is how we maintain a hold of our identity, right? Having an identity matters. I was teaching a sixth grade boys class recently, and it was an Old Testament class, and he was like, it all happened like 4,000 years ago. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I mean, why do we even need to listen to it? And I was like, you wouldn't just like throw your baby album away just because you're not a baby anymore. And he was like, yeah, but I mean, shouldn't we have something new at this point? Like, for him, it was, he didn't see the point of such an old scripture, and he was ready for us to just write a new one. But there's a reason that we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can't just start our own church and all new things. Trust me, I have contemplated doing it. <laughs> I'm like, free bird, I'm going to start a whole new church. But like, it matters that we have an identity, and it matters that we remember who we are. Um, it's one of those pieces of life that grounds us, and that's what, what Torah does. It grounds us in who we are and orients us towards God. The key with Torah and scripture is that it can't be the stopping place. It's the starting place. So scripture is what grounds us. It is the base that gives us our identity, reminds us who we are as a people. You know, somebody said once, if you make a circle too large, then it ceases to become a circle. <laughs> um, I think that we have scripture so we can be as big and as expansive as we want and still maintain who we are our basic function, our identity, and it does matter. Remembering who we are matters. Um, prophecy, he says, the spirit cannot talk if we're afraid of anything new, right? Um, in terms of, of prophetic voice, we're always looking for something um, that's moving us forward. So it's not that it's something brand new, it's that it's the next evolution, um, and it's also uh, usually pointing towards the kingdom of God, pointing to an ever-expansive um, vision of what's to come, kingdom talk. And then the wisdom literature helps us apply it to life. So what? That we have these things. Well, how do we apply it? So that's sort of Brueggemann's trinity. Uh, and then St. Paul, this is an example of how and why we ground ourselves in Torah. Um, Paul cites scripture 100 times throughout his letters. So that is always the foundation of Paul's letter. And remember what we know about Paul. Paul was a terrorist, essentially. He was um, a very, very devout Jewish man um, who really believed in the righteous cause that he needed to go and persecute Christians. And it was on his way to doing that that he literally had this moment with, with Jesus and was converted. And can you imagine sort of the intense guilt you would feel if that, you know, you felt like you were doing these really harmful things on behalf of God, and then God himself came to you and was like, yeah, you're wrong, right? Like, I don't know that I would recover from that. Um, and, and I imagine that that's something Paul carried with him. So getting it right for Paul was really important. 
Um, and scripture always was his base. Uh, also, Paul was prophetic. He was building the church. This is the new way forward. You know, there weren't like Christian churches and Jesus came and was like, this is the right way. Jesus was, and then we built the church. And Paul was the, the one who really helped us do that. He wrote more books of the Bible than anybody else. Um, and so here he is making sure that scripture is our foundation, right? Anything new that, that he's hearing, he's got to make sure that he's checking himself because he's got a lot of baggage, is how I would interpret Paul. Um, and it also suggests the fact that he's citing all of this suggests a working knowledge of scripture on the part of his readers, uh, or on the people who are reading his letters. So everything that he did is sort of systematically developed, and, he, and good theology was the foundation of his teaching. What do I mean by good theology? People like throw that around a lot. It means uh, that you have a working knowledge of scripture, of history, of, um, of context and background, and that you have the ability to apply that to modern day life. That's what I mean when I say good theology. So if somebody has bad theology, a lot of times people like to say that people have bad theology if they don't agree with it, right? Like, well, that's just bad theology. It might not be bad theology. It's just not your flavor of theology. So what we're after is good theology. We know what we're talking about. Um, do you guys know who Nadia Bowles Weber is? She's like, I think she's Lutheran. Is she Lutheran? She's a pastor, huh? She's Lutheran, yeah. And she's like a super rebel. She like has tattoos and she says the F word and like she's a super rebel. But she's also amazing. And somebody was interviewing her. I think it was on Fresh Air with Krista Tippett or something. And um, they were like, why are you allowed to do this? And she said, because I had really good training and I have good theology and good practice. And so they trust me. You know, they know that I come from maybe a cultural context that they don't, but they trust me because I have good, solid foundation. And that's always what we're after when we're doing something new or um, something that might feel a little bit dangerous or risky. We always want to make sure that we're grounded in good theology and good practice. Uh, this last note is important. Uh, catechesis was the foundation and not the final product. I think sometimes we forget that. Catechesis is the foundation. Everything that we're doing is the foundation, and I think a lot of times we are very concerned with the maintenance of that foundation, and we forget about that next step, the evolution, the, the you know, nurturing of our souls. So I'll give you kind of a personal vignette of how this has played out in my life. Uh, sort of hearing a prophetic message and, and going through these steps. A couple of years ago, I was attending the People of Color Conference. And at that conference, there was a Native American speaker um, who came out to give us a blessing. His name was Don Coyas. And he said that there were, um, that there's this hoop that he was given and he was told to collect a hundred feathers around it, and he was like, where am I going to get a hundred eagle feathers? And they were like, they'll come to you, right? And so people just started randomly giving him eagle's feathers or like mailing them in. Um, eventually it stopped and he got all nervous, but he counted it up. Sure enough, there's a hundred. So he went to the elders and he's like, what does this mean? And the elders said, for a long time, ever since things started going badly for us, you know, 
when the first people came to America, um, they would come to us and say, what do we do? You know, we need to do something. And the elders would always say, wait, hold on to your traditions. The time will come for healing. You know, and then something else bad would happen. And they'd say, wait, hold on to your traditions. Time for healing. Right? Um, then the, the Native American children were displaced and forced to go into our schools. And the same answer, wait, the time for healing is coming. And he said about two years ago after the Women's March, they went to the elder and the elder said the time for healing is now. And so he was instructed to use this hoop and to pronounce these four blessings to whoever asked for it, that it belonged to all of us. Now I have pronounced and received several blessings in my life as an Episcopalian, and never before have I felt such a stirring as when he waved that eagle feather over that hoop and gave me a blessing. It brought me to tears, and I couldn't think about anything else the rest of the day. And so I went back to my hotel room, and I'm processing, and I'm like, that was really, like, something happened in that moment. Um, And what I was most surprised by was the fact that I was surprised that it had come from a Native American man, that he could have had such an effect on my life. And I realized in that moment that I had some sort of unconscious prejudice that I wasn't aware of. And I do a really good job, I think, because I think I'm amazing, of not being that way. <laughs> um, so this was like very, I was like fully in the disturbed state of prophecy, right? Like, I'm not this prejudice, right? But I realized that that was the story that had been told to me. That was the story that was given to me, was, um, you know, that the Native American people were... Um, brought out on the Trail of Tears. They were forced into reservations where they sort of remained, and they were angry, drunk, and violent. You know, that was sort of the story given to me in school. Um, and, and that's this unconscious thought I had until this beautiful man broke open my heart. And so I realized I only knew one story about an entire group of people. Are you guys familiar with Chimamanda Ngozi? Anyone? Yeah. Uh, if you're not, I highly recommend her TED Talk. It's called, does it say danger? Good. It said dander yesterday. <laughs> and then I fixed it, but I wasn't sure I saved it. Um, so her, that's the name of her TED Talk, The Danger of a, a Single Story. And what she says is um, she's from Nigeria, and when she was a little girl in Nigeria, she loved to read. And the only books that she had were the ones that the um, white people had brought. And so she read all these books about the winter time and about apples and, you know, all these things that English people know about. And, like, they, they, she said they spent a lot of time talking about the weather in these books, right? And she's like, in Nigeria, we don't talk about the weather. Like, it's sunny. Um, they had mangoes, right? And so she, she realized that she never heard a single story about herself and how damaging that was for her. And then she realized that she also operated out of a single-story mindset because they had a, um, a, a house servant, I think is how she called it, um, and he was, whenever she wouldn't eat her food, his name was Fiddy, her mom would say, eat your food. Don't you know that children like Fiddy don't have enough food? Right? And so that's all she ever heard, that Fiddy was poor. And she eventually visited Fiddy's village and she was shown this beautiful bowl that his brother had made, and she was shocked. 
because she was like, I never thought about the fact that somebody from Biddy's family could make something so beautiful. Because the only story I knew about him was that he was poor. And so she talks about this danger of a single story. And so in my reflection on sort of this moment I had at the People of Color Conference, I was like, I only know one story about an entire group of people, and I'm being called to know a different story. Um, and it was, it's been quite a journey going through this process. So for me, again, fundamentalist Christian is my background. I need to know what scripture says about it. I need to know how is the gospel moving me. So if you'll indulge me, I know that we have, I know that you know the story, but I want to read it anyways, because I think scripture has power, and I think that when we read it out loud, it's sort of like, it's like waving the magic wand a little bit. I think that saying it out loud matters. So I'm going to read the story. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have, may have had. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So after hearing it again, does anything stand out to you? You've all heard it, right? Yeah, super, so many times. So essentially, uh, this Pharisee wants to trap Jesus into saying the wrong thing, and he sets up this perfect trap so that Jesus will name a law that uh, supersedes another one that they find is very important. And he sets up this perfect trap, and Jesus, of course, doesn't fall into it and says the great commandment. He sort of makes the man answer for him, and the man's like, well, I'm not really satisfied with that. I, I need to make sure that he gets trapped in this. So he says, well, who's my neighbor? Right, the tricky question. And Jesus could have easily said, everyone is your neighbor, right? Like, how many times have you heard that? Everyone is your neighbor. Um, but he didn't go that route. Instead, he told a story. And he tells this story about a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. This would have been a very well-known trade route. Um, it's steep, it's windy, and people are always carrying goods and gold, right? 
So it's a place, because of the wind and the steepness, it's a place that robbers often can attack. It's a vulnerable spot in the road. So everyone there would have known exactly what road and what scenario Jesus is talking about. So he says that this man is traveling, and he gets beaten by robbers, and he's, he's very badly beaten. He's left for dead. And then, of course, a priest comes by, and he passes by on the other side. Um, and then a Levite. A Levite would have been one of the second highest tribes. We're talking like the nobility. So these are their heroes, the people they would have expected to be the hero of the story. And Jesus says, no, he kept passing by. And so then he talks about a Samaritan, and Samaritans were also well-known to them, except that they only knew one story about Samaritans. They knew that they were foreigners, and that they were violent, and that they were not good people. That's the story that these people knew about Samaritans. And so Jesus gives them a different story. He says he took the man, he bandaged him up, and he took long-term care of him. And he made this Samaritan the hero of the story. So Jesus essentially told a different story about a person that they couldn't see. And that's the prophetic message of the story. We as Christians are to tell the story we don't know about the people we can't see. And that's really hard work because you have to figure out how to see. Sorry, I just said that, sorry. So for me, this meant that I had to look at my own privilege, right? I had to do some research. How do I see? Because privilege is invisible and you don't see it. And so I had to start looking at it so that I could see things. And I have lots of different privileges, but these were the three that came up the most. That I have white privilege, um, which is, you know, essentially an advantage that white people may not recognize they have, which distinguishes them from overt bias or prejudice. So these include cultural affirmations of one's, one owns one's own worth and presumed greater status. So, for example, um, in my workplace, everyone wears beige colors, we wear our hair natural, we wear pearls. That's just like how we are. Um, for a person of color, it might not be fair to say that you wear your hair natural, right? That might not actually be as acceptable for them. So it's a privilege that I get that I can wear my natural hair. That's an example of that. I have able-bodied privilege. I don't have to worry about ramps. I don't have to worry about getting my own soda from the fountain because it's slippery and there's no handles. Um, and I have Christian privilege. So when I go to the stores at Christmas time, everyone, everything is decorated like my own faith, which is nice. Um, at, I mean, I work at a Christian school, but at many different places in the workplace, you get Good Friday off. It's Christian privilege. So I began this, this um, long and painful process of looking at my privilege because that was what I felt like the prophetic voice was telling me from that People's Color Conference. Um, and it has been long and painful, and I've made a lot of mistakes, and I've also recognized a lot of the mistakes I've made in the past and how much I've hurt people that I didn't really want to hurt. And that work is difficult, and... I don't want to do it. Um, but that's the call, right? That's the call of the Christian to do that work. So 
how have I been trying to apply this to my life? Uh, it has not been easy, right? Um, to try to bring this into my workplace, to bring this into my family life, to bring this into my friend group. Um, I've received a lot of pushback, and I've made a lot of mistakes, right? I've been um, too heavy-handed when I should have been soft. I've been too cowardly when I should have been brave. It's been a difficult two years of doing this work. But the more that I do it, the more that I feel like this is one of the many prophetic voice uh, messages of our time. That the Bible is full of examples of where Jesus is just trying to eliminate this feeling of otherness and trying to help us see the people that we don't naturally see. There are tons of places in the Bible where Jesus is talking about the dominant culture and how they are experiencing privilege and making all the rules, and he wants us to champion the other. And this is really the prophetic message of our time, I believe, to tell the story that we don't know about the people that we can't see and to do that work internally. It's really about listening, and it's about being willing to stand in that disturbed place just as Mary Magdalene did at the cross. Mary Magdalene was one of the few people willing to stand with Jesus all the way through his death, and her reward for that was she got to see the resurrection. And that's what we're being called to do. So thank you for your time. Do you have questions or, or anything? <laughs> the roving reporter with the <laughs> microphone so that people can hear and the recording can pick it up. Does anybody have any questions they'd like to ask? Or statements? <laughs> okay, I applaud you for making that effort. Um, I grew up in the Anglican you know, <laughs> tradition and this is an important week for me. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it starts with confession, as you know. So you have to re-examine your whole life and the things that you think that uh, you need to change. Yeah. And as the week goes by, that is the basis for the week. And so you get annually a chance to change your life yeah. every year if you go through that discipline. And of course, that comes back to the canons, to the church, right? That's, that dictates that that is a process that you should do, and it's a good exercise. Yeah, right? thank you. I think you're right. That, that cycle of confession and renewal. Right. Thank you, yeah. We have a question here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Having my get, get me my steps in. That's right. Thanks, Simon. Thank you, Stephanie, for that. Um, reflecting on what you said, but also what we heard from Luke Timothy Johnson on Sunday, yeah. and I wasn't here yesterday, so hopefully he didn't talk more about this, and, and I missed it. But um, I was aware on Sunday that that he was talking about um, Luke's sermon on the plain, and in particular the "Blessed are the poor" statement, mm -hmm. 
And I was, it was just, I left really, really conscious of the fact that he was talking about it to a group of highly privileged people. And that we were all sitting there saying, you know, this is great. He's, you know, he's such a good scholar. And, and but then we walk out the door, and what does it, what does it mean for us? Which is kind, kind of where what you're talking about comes in. But I think what matters, and one of the true values of church community, of of Christian community, is that we find times and find ways to wrestle with these things together. Yeah. That it's the power of of community that will help us to do that. Because. I can walk out the door and I can reflect on that and I can say, but I don't know what to do. I don't know as a privileged white male yeah. what I'm supposed to do um, about this blessed are the poor yeah. um, statement. But hopefully as we wrestle together as people of faith, as, as part of the same um, community, um, that we can, we can begin to take those steps together um, to figure out what it means. Um, so I guess I'm just affirming yeah. what you're saying and then applying it not just to us as individuals, but to us as a faith community as well. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Community, but none of this can be done outside of community. Catherine Jeffert Story got in trouble once for saying that um, there's no such thing as individual salvation. And what she was really talking about is when, when the highest level of our Christian thought, Cynthia Burgess said this, not me, but when the highest level of our Christian thought our Christian command is love your neighbor as yourself, when that's the parameter of our faith, then then she's right in that sense. You have to have the other in order. Um, so nothing that we do is in sort of a silo, and no, you know, Jesus is not really going to give me a prophetic message that um, isn't something that needs to be dealt with in the community, right? It's, there's, he doesn't love me best. <laughs> so um, it's all always done within the community, so thanks for that. It's, it's a very active, spiritually active corner of the room here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I always thought the most outstanding female South Carolina Gamecock was Darla Moore, <laughs> the banker and the business school is named after. She's one of the first two female members of the Augusta National Golf Club. Yeah. I think she's got competition stuff. Oh, that's so <laughs> nice of you. <laughs> but my ego is already big, so you don't have to. <laughs> Just kidding. I wanted to ask a question about that well-loved um, and uh, story, the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. One of the things that community teaches us, and certainly you bear witness to, uh, I bear witness to as a priest, is that um, where we find ourselves in the story, and we might be first inclined to think, well, I'm definitely not like those first two characters, but maybe I could be like the Samaritan. But sometimes we can find, because I hear you saying one of the, the, at the heart of the prophetic life is this transformed heart, this internal change, uh, this turning around, if you like, that sometimes we are the person who is down on the road. And um, that can be as something as simple as um, there's no lifetime warranty for our bodies. Eventually the parts start giving out. Um, and we can find ourselves um, needing to receive the care and love of others, and that can be difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wonder if you could speak to to that experience of transformation, not necessarily your own, but how you feel about that in terms of how receiving that uh, care from others, that love from others, um, finding ourselves in a different place in that story can open up ways to lead a prophetic life. Yeah, thank you for that. 
I think um, I'll have to, you know, make it about my story because that's the, the best way I know how to answer this question. But I wasn't ready until the, the People of Color Conference to receive anything of value from that man until that moment. There was some transformation that had to have happened beforehand for me to really see and receive. And my husband, who's a psychologist at a state-run hospital here in Georgia, um, he, he sort of comes from this recovery model that not every doctor does. And, and his whole thing was that these are people and they have something to offer. And I think that the more that we can see everybody and see that they have something to offer, the richer our lives are going to be. And, and part of maybe why we find ourselves in stagnation is that we forget that. We're looking at all the normal places for care. Um, and the care is all around us. God's like, I just gave it to you. There was a homeless man that walked up to you in the street, right? He had something for you. Um, so I do think that transformation, um, we have to be ready for it. And I, I prepare myself through contemplative practice. It's like a whole other session. But um, also the, the willingness to open to the other in order to see. Is that helpful at all? Time for one last one if there is one. Here we go. I knew there was hope for the center of the room. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go, Dick. One comment when you're saying have somebody has something to offer, the word value mm. of the person came yeah. to my mind. Yeah. But going back earlier in your talk, could you restate the good principle or good theology? Yeah, good theology to me is a sound understanding of scripture. You know, um, I do think Bible study matters, and sometimes we're like, well, I did that in Sunday school, and, and we stop. But I think that regular and practice Bible study matters. Um, a, a working knowledge of our history, not just as Christians, but as people, and uh, an awareness of the setting that all of these things have taken place, both current and in biblical. I think those things make up good theology, and then they sort of breed good practice. And those two things go hand in hand to me, good practice and good theology. And if we have that, then we can explore and be as heretical as we want. You know, we're not going to lose that core of who we are. Or that's what I do. <laughs> so, yeah. When I lead um, Adult Inquirer's class, which is twice a year, I describe the Episcopal Church as practicing a generous orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. And that we, we clearly know what we believe because we say it every Sunday in the Nicene Creed. <laughs> uh, maybe that's just a reminder. Um, but that we recognize that people come to that creed from all sorts of angles. And of course, that's a, a, a beloved principle of being all saints is that you know, all sorts is a theological mm -hmm. statement also. Uh, but, but I think that is true to the Episcopal identity that we're a church that's um, truly a broad church and that we learn yeah. from the expansiveness of the view of the views of others um, as we have done today um, Stephanie thank you so much for sh being with us again we hope that there'll be another again uh, in the not too distant future blessings for you and your ministry in those far reaches of Brookhaven yeah. um, <laughs> and thank you everybody for being here today. Tomorrow we'll conclude the series with the Reverend Natasha Reed Rice, who was our Canuga speaker um, last year and is uh, an associate uh, pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church. 
and an attorney, so there's hope for us all. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>